the U.S. Army is undertaking a massive restructuring, the likes of which has not been seen for decades. Objectives range from fielding new and innovative weapons to stay ahead of potential adversaries, to developing new operational concepts and warfighting doctrines. And the stakes could not be higher. The quality of these efforts will determine nothing less than the outcome of future conflicts and the security of the United States and its allies. General Joseph Martin is the 37th Vice Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army, and he's currently the Army's second highest ranking active duty officer. He has proudly served the United States in uniform for 34 years, deploying to Iraq on numerous occasions and commanding at all levels. On this special edition of Foreign Policy, General Martin joins my colleague, Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FED's Center on Military and Political Power, to discuss Army readiness, modernization, the defense budget, and more. Since this discussion several weeks ago, the focus has shifted to tackling the coronavirus, but solving these issues remains paramount to U.S. national security. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. General Martin, I want to welcome you to this special edition of Foreign Policy. Thank you so much for coming. It's my pleasure to be here, Brad. Well, given all the responsibilities and tasks that you have on your plate as the 37th Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, I'm grateful that you'd make time to engage in the defense dialogue with me. Well, it's really important that we do that. We've got a lot of things going on in the United States Army, and we want to make sure that everybody knows the direction we're going and and ensure that uh, they understand our vision and all the things that go into uh, achieving the outcomes of that vision. Well, I'm excited. Thank you. So perhaps we can jump right into it. Um, Before we talk about Army readiness, perhaps modernization and uh, the fiscal year 2021 budget, I thought it might be good to just discuss your background a little bit. Um, Your staff tells me that you grew up near Detroit. I did. Actually, Dearborn, Michigan, uh, auto capital of the world back then when I was there. Uh, grew up uh, a son of a, of a worker for Ford, uh, an executive for Ford, who was, who was also a son of the executive of Ford. And so uh, a lot of Ford history in my family, and you can imagine when I drive now. <laughs> uh, but grew up in that city. Uh, I was a swimmer, uh, and uh, swimming is what allowed me to have the opportunities that I had to uh, go to the United States Military Academy in 1986. And so that's where I went to college, left there. Uh, I have been back to Detroit, uh, but I haven't been back for a long time because uh, I've been in the Army ever since I left in 1981. Were, uh, were your father and grandfather okay with you not joining the auto industry? Well, it's interesting. My whole family, my uncle, my brother, my father, all naval aviators. And it was my father, of all people, who uh, gently prodded me on uh, seeking out an appointment to the military academy. And so, no, they were very proud. Uh, first person uh, in the family to go to a military academy. And so, uh, Everybody was happy. I noticed that you graduated from West Point in 1986. Um, there were a few other notable graduates of that class. Uh, what, was there something in the water or what made that class so special? 
I don't know. I think I think West Point does a great job of producing graduates who can lead in in many different regards in this country uh, and the world. And uh, I'm very proud of my classmates' achievements, and uh, it's a it's 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 an honor to be a part of that cohort. For the listeners, the other graduates of the class of 1986 include Secretary Pompeo, the Secretary of State, of course, and Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. So it's a it's quite a class. Every now and then, you have a class like that that uh, does particularly well, and it's always kind of interesting to uh, think about what comes together to make that possible. When you graduated from uh, from the academy in '86, why did you choose to become an armor officer? A lot of people. Well, one, did you plan on making it? a 34 plus year career and you know a lot of folks choose infantry you chose armor why'd you choose armor so brad uh as you well recall from your cadet <laughs> days yeah. uh we had opportunities to uh to gain some exposure to the various branches that were united states army and uh until i met the then m60a3 tank uh i i thought i was going to be a field artillery officer i was very fascinated in that and then i got on top of a tank uh, was able to shoot the main gun and the rest is history during my time as a cadet, I went over to Europe and served in the 11th ACR. Uh, the Armored Cavalry Regiment. Armored, yeah, the Armored Cavalry Regiment uh, <clears throat> on the frontiers of freedom, uh, facing a monolithic threat. Uh, thought it was a complicated world back then. Had no idea yeah. I'd be doing this Wouldn't it now. be nice if we go back to that kind of world <laughs> in some ways? It, yeah. In many regards, I yeah. look back and I smile on yeah. Now yeah. how simple yeah. things were back yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that you commanded a company in Desert Storm, a battalion in Operation Iraqi Freedom. And then you commanded the 2nd Brigade 1st Infantry Division and deployed with that command to Baghdad. Um, you later commanded the storied 1st Infantry Division and commanded Joint Force Land Component Command in Operation Inherent Resolve. You spent a lot of time in Iraq. What lessons do you take from your time, your, your combat experience in Iraq? Well, what I take is uh, when when the wall fell I think everybody was wondering what's next. And the lesson I took out of my experiences since that time is you never know what's going to happen in the world that surrounds us. It's a very complicated world, uh, trying to predict where and when and against whom and with, uh, we would be, uh, fighting, uh, is very difficult to predict. And so, uh, you've got to be ready because you never know what's going to happen. I remember at the end of Desert Storm, after commanding a company in Desert Storm, I felt like, okay, I've, I have had that once in a lifetime opportunity to serve with and command soldiers in combat. And, uh, you know, 2001, uh, September 11th, 2001 happened and the rest is history. What, what did, General, what did you see of the bravery and sacrifice of the American soldier that you, that you hope every American would know or understand if well, they've been there with you? Brad, it's, 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 it's deeper than that. Uh, I like to tell folks all the time that when you look at a soldier, you, you should, you should be uh, admiring them at hello. And this is why, uh, you've got soldiers who are smarter than the average American. They're in the top 40, uh, the top 55th percentile of the country, uh, intellectually. Physically, there's no comparison. Only 27% of the people in this country can qualify physically to serve as a soldier. And so intellectually, they're smarter than the average American. Physically, uh, they dominate their American uh, counterpart. Yet for some reason, they raise their right hand yeah. and they swear an yeah. oath to serve this country. Uh, and so they're very special people. The sacrifices they make every day are very difficult to describe unless you experience them yourselves. But deploying to combat is one of the many sacrifices that our soldiers uh, take on every single day. And so my son serves in the Army now, chose to do it all on his own. And uh, I, I, I always tell people that I, every soldier I look at, I, I've yeah. got, they've got me at hello. 
Yeah. When I, when I had the honor to teach at West Point and, and teach cadets there, you know, uh, cadets who would later become army officers, I just marveled. And this, you know, this was in 2004 to 2007 after the 9-11 attack. So every one of them that volunteered to go there knew that they would be commissioned. And within a year or two of graduating, they would deploy to war. And in their five to six, seven year uh, initial commitment, they would probably be at war for at least two of those years, at least. And I just marveled at, at the courage and sacrifice of, of people like that and, and thought how grateful I am that we have people that are like that who are willing to stand between us and those who want to kill us. And they still are in line yeah. to join yeah. even now. It's amazing. You commanded the 1st Infantry Division. I'm a bit of a, a history uh, geek. I want, I want to be a history scholar. And, uh, you know, uh, some of the listeners may be familiar with the, the history of this uh, amazing division. It's going back to World War I, uh, the Omaha beaches during the Normandy landings, uh, uh, Vietnam, uh, Desert Storm, Iraq, and Afghanistan. What was it like to command the 1st Infantry Division, the Big Red One? An unbelievable dream come true. And uh, I I had the opportunity very quickly after I uh, assumed command of the division to deploy over to Iraq and lead the Joint Forces Land Component Command uh, for Operation Inherent Resolve. And that was a 23-country uh, coalition unbelievable opportunity every single person that was in the staff of that uh that coalition from all the countries was handpicked by their senior leaders in their uh in their security uh their their, their department of defense or equivalent of department of defense and uh so it's a great opportunity i came back the second year and we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the first division um and the first division has been a part of just about every single conflict that uh, we've participated in as a country. And so it's a rich history. Uh, the fact that I had two command opportunities before then, when I was told I was going to the first ID, my only question to the person that told me was when. <laughs> I noticed you're wearing the first ID patch on your, on Proudly. Your, on your right shoulder. All right. Um, so 34 years later, after graduating from West Point, you're now the vice chief of staff of the Army. People like you and me who do this full time know what that means. But for some of the listeners who don't really understand how the Army's organized, what is the vice chief of staff of the Army and, and what do you do? So the vice chief of staff of the Army is the second rank, highest ranking officer in the United States Army, the, Army, the service itself. Um, what I do is I do everything that the chief of staff doesn't want to do. That's the short <laughs> Isn't that answer. the way it always works? <laughs> for, for those that are in business, uh, I've tried to create uh, something that I, I use to explain what I do. So think of a COO of a uh, $3.5 trillion corporation. We got about 1.3 million employees. We're in about 140 countries around the world. So we're a global operation and we've got a $180 billion budget to make sure that our soldiers and our formations are trained, ready, and equipped to uh, handle any task given them. Boy, with that many uh, people, that would probably put you at like, what, a Fortune 10, Fortune 5 company, something like that in terms of, I don't know. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it, it, it's an honor. The job The job is is absolutely amazing. I tell you, I walk into the Pentagon every day and I've got 10 priorities that I want to yeah. accomplish. And I, I, I usually knock out about three of those and seven that I had no idea I was going to even work on that day because it's a big organization. It's a global operation. Uh, there's just about anything that you can imagine that happens. You know, those uh, of the listeners who, you know, watch a hearing every now and then or, or are bored on the weekend and watch C-SPAN or, or listen to people like us talking, a term they'll hear a lot is readiness. 
and and it's fundamental to what what the army does and and I would assume what you focus on um what is readiness when you talk about readiness what is that I'll try to give you an I'll try to give an example that I've used to talk to other audiences about this uh so for a brigade combat team think of a 3500 person organization about 2200 vehicles that uh this is an armor brigade combat team for it to, it's got to be ready to execute its core competencies to do that the brigade commander has a responsibility with his 3,500 soldiers to make sure that they can competently execute about 5,000 individual tasks competently. Collectively, they've got to be able to execute from platoon, think of about 16 to 30 people, all the way up to the brigade level, uh, about 750 tasks competency. At its core, that's what readiness is about. Soldiers are ready, but they're proficient and they're confident and competent in the skills that we ask them to do. And then collectively, they're able to work together and achieve an outcome that would be much better if we had 3,500 soldiers doing something all by themselves. I spent a little time in the Pecan at a much lower rank than you are as, as a major in Army G357, which focuses on readiness. And I learned during my time there that readiness consists of some con- uh, key components, which you know better than me. It's people. Do you have the right people in sufficient quantity? Are they properly trained? Do you have the right equipment? And is it properly maintained? I mean, those are kind of the key ingredients, would you agree, of, of what makes a unit ready? I, I would agree. And uh, that's what we've been focusing on the, the past couple of years with the with the uh, resourcing and the funding that we've received from Congress. And so uh, we've been focusing on those brigade formations, not just armor uh, brigade combat teams, but also all of the functional brigades. Think about engineer brigades, think about field artillery brigades, combat aviation brigades. Um, and so uh, now our focus is shifting. It's not shifting away from, it's shifting and expanding our focus to what we call strategic readiness. And right. so- Right. What is What are the consequences uh, when a, an army unit is not ready? I, I think of Task Force Smith and Korea and things like that. What, what do the American people need to understand are the consequences when a unit- is deployed and they're not fully ready? Well, you want them to be ready to go so that they can do what they came in the Army to do and fulfill the requirements that they've been asked to do. I mean, in simple terms, that's yeah. that's that's yeah. the importance of readiness. We'd be letting down the people of this country and we'd yeah. be letting down those volunteers that I spoke yeah. of previously yeah. if we did not invest in the re- or, or provide them the resources to be ready. But I've got to talk about strategic readiness please, for a please second. Please do, yeah. So, We've worked so hard to make sure that our formations are ready to go, but there's investments that we will continue to make over the, over the years, uh, in the infrastructure that allows them to deploy where they're going. We're an expeditionary army. Most of us are in the United States. And so at each of our power projection platforms, the installations where our soldiers live, work and, uh, train, uh, there's, there's infrastructure there that allows us to think railheads, think the roads to railheads, think about, airfields, the roads to airfields, all of that infrastructure has got to be in place. And then the infrastructure between them and a port needs to be in good good shape. The rails, the roads, and the port facilities in this country have to be in great shape. And you can't stop there. You got to think about the ports that receive our equipment and our soldiers, the airports and the seaports, and then all the infrastructures in the various countries that uh, we would anticipate that we would need to go deploy to, to uh, execute operations in support of combatant command requirements. All that has to be taken into account. The last aspect, 
are these uh, mobilization force generation installations. Think of places where we mobilize reserve forces. There's capabilities that we've got to have in place, and we've got to have contingency capabilities in place in case we need to expand that if we have a larger than anticipated mobilization. So it's not enough to have a well-trained and ready unit at Fort Riley, Kansas. we got to get them to the fight, and that means everything you just described. Exactly, Brad. Yeah, yeah. and so we had the uh, commander of Transportation Command testify before the Senate Armed Service Committee, and he was talking about things like uh, the the, the vessels that we need to get uh, army equipment to the fight. He was talking about refueling tankers. He was talking about all these sorts of things. Those are pivotal for the army to get all these soldiers who are in the continental United States to the fight if necessary. That's absolutely correct. Okay. So how ready is the army today and how does that compare to perhaps, you know, say three years ago? Uh, we continue to improve upon our readiness, but once again, we've expanded the aperture, so we're focusing on strategic readiness as well. We'll be talking about that with, and we have been talking about that with uh, multiple audiences. I noticed that the uh, the secretary and the chief of staff of the Army uh, were speaking publicly recently, and they talked about that the Army about three years ago had about two brigades that were at the highest level of readiness, and now we're at about 25. So that strikes me as a, a significant and needed improvement. Well, it is. Uh, and we continue to sustain that. But once again, it's expanded focus on strategic readiness. And uh, uh, an expression of that is recently we had a unit had, uh, that had the opportunity to deploy rapidly to a place on the face of the earth. And uh, they, did second it. Airborne. they did it very yeah. quickly. Yeah. Uh, the first battalion was gone in 20 hours. And remember, they were mustered. They were called to muster on New Year's Eve. Yeah, I heard there were, some of them were pulled out of New Year's Eve parties. Well, I don't know about par- I can't I can't I can't give you, you the can't details. Either confirm nor deny. But what yeah. I'll tell you is uh it's yeah. amazing how quickly they were able to that's, muster. That's and that's an expression that's an expression yeah. of army readiness there. Yeah, and people are willing to <clears throat> to, to uh, be on that sort of recall uh, impressive individuals. Notice you commanded the uh, National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California. What role does that play in readiness? Oh, it's huge. Uh so at home station once again, places where soldiers live, work, and train. Uh, they train on their collective tasks, their individual tasks. They make sure that they're personally ready to deploy. And then these units deploy. They deploy to a foreign country. It's not a foreign country. It's the National Training Center. we got a place like that, uh, JRTC, the Joint Readiness Training Center as well. But they deploy to the National Training Center. It's about the size of the state of Rhode Island. And they fight the most, uh, the most uh, uh, proficient adversary available known to mankind in an environment of complexity that would just absolutely blow your mind. Um, and we do that because what we want to do is we want these units to deploy there. We want them to fight against a, uh, a competent adversary. And it, it creates it creates uh, stress points or fissures that we see that we wouldn't otherwise see unless they were in contact with the enemy uh, in war. And so when, they, when we identify these, these, uh, these, these shortcomings, the unit's able to then determine what it needs to do to remedy these shorts, these shortcomings. And, uh, we, we as an army have become much, much better because of our combat training centers. And if you can imagine, they learn lessons at the combat training centers. They go back home and they say, all right, what do we got to do back at home so that we can be even better next time? Uh, we deploy to a combat training center. So there's readiness, which we've been talking about, tactical, operational, strategic readiness. And there's modernization, which I think of, and I'm sure you can help me think of it even better, is, you know, uh, preparing to be ready in the future. And, uh, you know, I uh, based on my time in the Senate, I, w- I went back and looked at the testimony 
of uh, one of your predecessors, Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, General uh, Daniel Allen at the time, who testified on February 6, 2017. And let me just read a quote from his testimony and, and get you to respond. He said, our, this is you know, him speaking you know, about three years ago now. Our army, quote, our army requires modernized equipment to win decisively. But today we are outranged, outgunned, and outdated. We have prioritized near-term readiness to the detriment of equipment modernization and infrastructure upgrades, assuming risk and mortgaging our future readiness. He warned that, quote, an unintended consequence of current fiscal constraints is that the Army can no longer afford the, the most modern equipment and we risk falling behind near peers in critical capabilities. Decreases to the Army budget over the past several years significantly impacted Army modernization. Given these trends... And to preserve readiness in the short term, the Army has been forced to selectively modernize equipment to counter our adversaries' most pressing technological advances and capabilities. At the same time, we have not modernized for warfare against peer competitors, and today we risk losing overmatch in every domain. That was three years ago. How has that motivated what the Army has done in the last three years? Well, I don't want to speak for General Allen. What I'll tell you is I think we're in a, I think we're in a good place, but we've got to watch ourselves very carefully. We're at a point right now where, of course, back in 2015, we had the next generation, uh, Russian, uh, the Russian next generation warfare study, which allowed us to see something in the future that we had to take account. Uh, we, we had to study. Uh, so, uh, through, uh, experimentation and exercises, we we're able to develop the outcomes of those uh, ex- experiments. We we're able to develop uh, a new concept. And that new concept uh, further experimented, allowed us to determine what capabilities we needed. And so those capabilities uh, have turned into the six modernization priorities for the United States Army. Under those six modernization priorities, we've got 31 signature programs, and they range in development from uh, requirements to prototyping to uh, we have uh, uh, several programs where we are fielding equipment and it's going through operational testing uh, as, as we speak. And so I tell you that we're at a state now where we are gaining momentum. If you can imagine pushing a big rock up a hill, we continue to push it up the hill because we've got to get some of these programs beyond prototype, select which, which, which type of, uh, or which prototype we're going to select and move out with operational testing and then begin the procurement process. Once we begin that procurement process, that boulder will start rolling. It'll take on a life of its own and we will achieve an outcome similar to what I saw. I didn't know what was going on. When I arrived at my first unit in Germany, sat on top of an M60A3 tank for a couple of months, and then I got this brand new tank. It's called the M1A1 tank. That was the outcome of the Army going through a similar inflection point in the past where we changed our doctrines, created CT combat training centers, and uh, delivered new capability to our formations so we could fight outnumbered and win against our adversaries. No, that's I'm, – I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, my sense and, and I think I've heard the Secretary-in-Chief say this as well, that the Army is going through the most significant restructuring arguably in 40 years. Um, and I think that's what you just described, right, with Army Futures Command and so forth. We have and we did it because we knew that we had to be more responsive to the environment that exists around us. Uh, one could argue that when the M1A1 tank – I keep going back to tanks because I'm an old tanker. <laughs> I can't imagine why. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the M1A1 tank, but you can substitute that with the AH-64, uh, the UH-60. Okay, those 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 uh, capabilities still exist, but they have been incrementally uh, uh, improved over time. And there was a vision back then based on my historical 
reading and uh, experience. I'll tell you, there was a vision back then that we'd have the tank that we have now. We had to mature technology to marry it up with that tank so that it could do things like self-diagnostics. So it could, so it could have the capability to engage, engage and look for other targets simultaneously. Well, we're at a time now where we're not going to have the, we're not going to have the luxury of uh, taking decades to incrementally up, upgrade our equipment. Technology and the environment that exists around us is, is, is going to move quicker than that. And so we had to take our, the acquisition process and the requirements development process and change it. And when we brought, uh, when we created AFC, what we did is through these uh, cross-functional teams is we brought requirements developers and material developers and we put them together so that they could work together to develop requirements so they could work together to look at solutions and prototype equipment. And it's going to allow us to field equipment a lot faster. Uh, we've got these enhanced night vision goggles, uh, version Bravo, that have been already issued to a brigade. That was idea to uh, providing equipment to a brigade uh, within two years. We've got to do that because if we don't, by the time if we use the traditional acquisition process and didn't leverage some of the new authorities that uh, Congress has provided us, uh, if we didn't use those authorities and speed things up, by the time we fielded the equipment out, uh, the equipment would already be not irrelevant, but it would be less than uh, less than well, I'm trying to think of the right word. Uh, it would not be as relevant and as, as it needs to be. Our warfighters would find them Ill, themselves in a conflict with an adversary that might have more technologically, technologically advanced equipment and which would make that conflict more likely and might result in our service members struggling to, to win that conflict, right? That That's a fact. And uh, so we recognize that and that's why we've changed up our processes. We've reorganized. You know, we've got the Army Material Command. That's in charge of the sustainment enterprise for the United States Army. We've got training and doctrine command that brings all the new people into the Army and, and creates the doctrine to train everybody in the Army and the doctrine for the Army. We've got the forces command. That's the command that provides ready forces. Why wouldn't we have a futures command that's looking solely at the future with a four-star at the top of the chain of command? So a little commentary from me here, and feel free to respond or uh, tell me what you think. But I mean, what we've seen since 9-11 is because of Congress's inability to provide timely, sufficient, predictable funding on a regular basis, the reliance on continuing resolutions that we can perhaps talk about later, um, and uh, the tough decision that the Army has had, do, do I fund the unit and resource the unit that's about to deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan, or do I modernize when faced with that choice? Smart leaders decided, I got to make sure our sons and daughters who are deploying to war have what they need. And so we've postponed modernization. And when we did pursue modernization, we take 20, 10 to 20 years from beginning in to fill the system. And so the warfighters would say, the combatant commanders say, I need X. And then it'd go into this Byzantine process that would take forever. And by the time it was filled, the technology may or may not be the best on the battlefield. I hear you saying that we can't do it that way anymore. We got to be quicker and more agile. Otherwise, we may find ourselves overmatched on future battle we do we need predictable adequate sustained and timely funding that's what without a fact that's really important uh you know this year beginning of the year we were looking at a cr and what i used to tell people is let me give you the impact of that it's seven billion dollars in lost buying power and what i mean by that with new starts and uh production increases that we had programmed for the year we couldn't do those based on the rule of the cr and so Throughout the course of this year, if the CR would have lasted this year, it would have been $3.5 billion of lost buying power. Well, 
those requirements that we were trying to execute this year, we would have to execute the next year. Right. So it's a total of $7 billion Delaying in lost things. buying power. Yeah. It's, so, I mean, for the listeners, I mean, the Constitution requires Congress to appropriate funds, and including for the Department of Defense. And so they have to require uh, provide an annual defense appropriation that provides the money. And the Armed Services Committee have to provide an annual National Defense Authorization Act, which provides authorities to start these new programs that you're talking about. And with the over the last decade, for the exception of, I think, one year, those were both of neither of those were provided before the new facility fiscal year started. So that forced the Army to postpone things, delay things, and and really undercut the buying power of the Army as you tried to equip our service members. Yes. And it's it's really important that we have predictable, adequate, sustained, and timely funds. Uh, let's talk, uh, if, if you're willing, about uh, the Army's budget request. So um, every year, the Department of Defense, uh, including the Army, uh, submits its budget request to Congress. And hopefully Congress adjudicates that, provides an authorization and appropriation, as I discussed earlier, before the end of the fiscal year. Uh, this year, the arm for excuse me for fiscal year 2021, the Army is requesting a total of 178 billion. Uh, to put that in context for the listeners, that's actually a reduction from the enacted level for fiscal year 2020 of 180 billion. So it won't even keep pace with inflation. So we've had some nice increases in funding over the last three years, but this year is uh, a flat budget uh, overall for the Pentagon that won't keep pace with inflation. The Army actually is getting a, uh, has a request that's slightly less than the enacted level last year. How would you characterize, uh, General, the Army's fiscal year 2021 budget request in terms of its priorities and what you're trying to do with the money that Congress will provide? So we want to continue to be a, a ready Army. We're going to grow uh, modestly uh, in size because we've got additional requirements uh, in our formations that we've got to fill out over time. Uh, we're going to continue our modernization efforts uh, and to to uh, fund all of those, uh, we w- we have continued our, our reform efforts that we've executed over time, and uh, because we understand that you know the, the resources we have are the resources we have, and uh, requirements always exceed resources. People say, "What are your? Do you have any additional requirements?" The answer is yes, but so what you do to balance the books so you can live within the means that you've been provided is you execute uh, very uh, strict uh, reform efforts yes. and take a hard look at all your portfolios and you start balancing. Yes, this was important, uh, but not as important as modernizing. This was important, but not as important as ready formations and uh, ready power projection platforms uh, and, and ready everything. We had Secretary McCarthy here at FTD uh, last year for a public event, and and he talked about ruthless prioritization, and he talked about this night court process. I think it's important for the American people to understand the the systematic rigor that has been brought to the budget to try to do exactly what you just said, to say, you know, we'd like to have that, but it's not as important as this. Tell me a little bit about this kind of night court ruthless prioritization process. So imagine instead of uh – Going into the next year saying, okay, let's build the program based on last year's program. We start with a zero baseline budget. In other words, we break down everything down to its smallest parts and we, we, we go through the process of ruthlessly prioritizing, uh, the, the resources that we require and we compete different priorities against each other so that we can achieve an outcome of, uh, prioritizing and funding the most important mm-hmm. things we have. 
What are the uh, top priorities for the Army in this year's uh, – what are the number one things you need from Congress this year in, in, in the budget in terms of their authorities or funding? If you had to kind of point to one or two things that are particularly important to the Army that you would want members of Congress to hear about, what, what would you – Oh, you they, need, they need to understand this as we look towards the future. We've got the budget that we submitted this year, but as we look towards the future, uh, again – uh, we've got many prototypes that we've either, uh, we're either in the process of testing, putting our hands around, uh, but those are going to turn into programs of record. And so we're going to need more procurement dollars in the future. And we're going to continue to execute our ruthless prioritization and our reform efforts. But Congress needs to understand that we're going to need to fund those programs so that they can, as I said in the beginning of this, take on a life of their own and achieve irreversible momentum. We do that. We'll have the army that we need and the equipment we need in the future. So we talked about Army Futures Command. Because of their good work, we have all these successful pilot programs for these future weapons that our, you know, our sons and daughters and grandchildren will, will use to deter conflict for decades to come. Um, and they're pilot programs now. But like you just said, these are pilot programs are going to become full-fledged programs that need to be funded in fiscal year 22 and 23. And that's really when the tough choices are going to come and when I would argue the Army is really going to need the support of members of Congress to make that happen to ensure that our soldiers never face a fair fight. Brad, I couldn't have said it better. You mentioned earlier the Army's uh, desire to modestly grow the size of the active duty Army. Why is that necessary? Uh, if, you know, if your overall Army budget is actually slightly down from last fiscal year, why are you allocating finite resources to modestly grow the size of the active duty Army? We also go through uh, a ruthless prioritization of structure within our organization. We take a look at our structure uh, in all components of the Army with a view of what structure do we need in the future. And so as we plan the Army of the future, we identify multi-domain task forces and other like organizations that are necessary as we continue to move forward. Well, to fill those formations with the appropriate people, you've got to continue to modestly grow the Army. And that's what we're going to do. When you're developing next uh, generation weapons, I would assume that it's very important to understand what soldiers really need because they're the ones that will be using the equipment. Is that right? It is. Uh, I'm a former operational test command commander. And so what I was responsible for is I, I oversaw the, uh, the, the, the testing, operational testing of all the equipment that the Army was in the process of determining if they're ready to go to production on in the past. Well, those operational tests were really the first time that we uh, placed equipment in soldiers' hands and uh, allowed them to, if you will, use it in the environment that it was intended to be used in. Uh, we now use soldier touch points early on in the process so that we can get back feedback from soldiers. It's amazing what, you know, God bless all of our engineers, all of our folks that develop requirements, but they can't see things like soldiers can when they touch things and go, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And uh, with these touch points, we were able to inform changes that would have otherwise had to have been made much later in the acquisition process after spending money on developing a prototype. Uh, and so it's saving us money. It's allowing us to receive some vital feedback. It's also exciting for the Army because these soldiers go back to their formations and they talk about what the Army is developing for them and their fellow soldiers. And so it's win-win for everybody. So it's allowing us to get a better weapon more quickly to the warfighter. Absolutely. Well, General, I just want to thank you so much for uh, taking time to talk with me. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you for your uh, 34 years of service to our country and to your son as well. And uh, uh, we wish you the very best and, and thank you for your service. 
Let me close with this. It's an honor to be a part of this team. Uh, 34 years ago, if you'd asked me, uh, do you ever see yourself as the vice chief of staff of the Army? The answer would be no, but uh, it's an honor to be here. And I can't tell you how excited I am to be with the team that I have right now. There's nobody else I'd rather serve with, and there's no other place I'd rather be. And so uh, look forward to to, uh, the future. We've got to continue to press on because our soldiers and their families and our formations deserve it. I agree. Well said. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas. Foreign Policy at FDD. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.